All right, if you will, please take your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 3 and Luke chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 is where we'll spend most of our time. And then if you will, please uh, take your, uh, if you have a, a marker in your Bible some way, mark that at uh, Matthew chapter 3. Go over to find Luke chapter 3. And then uh, we'll, we'll be reading in Matthew chapter 3 to begin today. The Old Testament and the New Testament begin very similarly. In fact, the very first words of the Old Testament introduce us to the theme of the book. Not the theme of Genesis, the theme of the Bible. The words are, in the beginning, God. And it tells us much about the book. For everything that follows explains to us about God. In the beginning, God. The New Testament doesn't begin much too different from that. It says, in the beginning was the Word. You see, both of them are introducing us to God. The Old Testament, one of the primary themes of the Testament, is that God's written Word would be recorded for man. When God's written Word was given to us, it introduced guilt to us. It introduced uh, the problem, the division between us and God. See, no man could ever keep all of God's law. And that was a problem because that separated us from God. In the beginning, God and the Old Testament's primary purpose was to introduce us to God's written word. That brought guilt and that brought shame. In the New Testament, though, it introduces us to not the written word of God, but the living word of God. Where the written word of God brought guilt and shame, the living word of God brought eternal life and peace with God. And if you just kind of keep going down, you'll find that the beginning of both Testaments are very similar, but they're contrasted in many ways. In other words, the first man that we're introduced to in the Old Testament is a man by the name of Adam, he's God's creation. And God gave him one very simple command, don't eat of this one particular fruit. And that man, if you look back in history, we identify him with failure. Failure. You know why? Because he failed to keep one command that God gave him. It's like putting a bucket of cookies in front of a child and saying, now don't eat those until I get back. Yeah, good luck. (laughs) Probably that's not going to go over too well. And Adam, we look back at him and we say, Adam, you're a failure. But the first man that we're introduced to in the New Testament, we view as a success. His name is John. In fact, in verse number 6 of John chapter 1, the Bible says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. In fact, Jesus said about this man, Verily I say unto you, Among them that are born of women there hath not been a greater than John the Baptist. In fact, Jesus says he was as great a success as there's ever been born of women. And that's, to me, just a, a great compliment to John. Adam was viewed as a failure. John was viewed as a success. I'll tell you what I want to be. I want to be a success. I want you to go with me now. Matthew chapter 3. We'll begin reading a little bit about John. And today we're going to study... His life and what made him a success by Jesus' estimation. The Bible says in John chapter 3, verse 1, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea, 
and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and, and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to him, uh, his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bring forth their fruit, for, therefore fruits meet for repentance. And I think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth forth uh, not, not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll uh, proceed with the message today. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us today as we meet around your word. Lord, I pray that you would give me clarity of thought. Help me to present truth as it is. Lord, and I pray that I would be assisted in this endeavor by the Holy Spirit of God. Lord, still my thoughts, still my intents and motives. Lord, may the Holy Spirit so fill me that I would present your truth, and only what you once said today. Lord, help every person in this room as there's distractions within the room and without the room. May we be focused in on what you might be doing in our heart, not in our neighbor's heart, not in the heart of the person sitting behind us, but Lord, in our heart. Help us to be smart and wise today as your Holy Spirit moves in our heart. I pray that you do this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to be a success, and I hope that everybody in this room wants to be a success. After all, nobody likes failure, and I want to be a success. But what is success? You know, I got to thinking about it, and success really changes as we age, doesn't it? And you think about it, if, if you could go back and ask five or six-year-old you what you want to be when you grow up, do you think that you would have given a great answer? I mean, some of our answers would have been something like this. Well, I want to be a firefighter, you know, because that's a pretty cool job when you think of it. Uh, you say, I, I, I want to be a veterinarian. And that's before we learned that there was a lot of schooling that goes into that. And we were just not about that. And uh, maybe, maybe somebody was like really excited and be like, I want to be an astronaut. Well, that was before they had like shut down NASA. So, you know. I want to be an archaeologist. Well, you know, Indiana Jones makes it look cool, but really dusting fossils I don't think is as interesting as it may seem. And we, we have just such a different view of what success is at a four and five and six-year-old understanding. And then we get, we get a little older, we grow up a little bit, right? And it changes. You know, we become young men and young women and we kind of feel like, We'd be willing to work whatever job they put in front of us as long as the benefits were right. You know, because we'd become concerned about things like compensation. 
We, be concerned, we become concerned with things like, you know, vacation days and, and insurance. And, and uh, you know, I'm trying to take care of my family the best that I can. And so if it's a broom and we're sweeping or if it's a hammer and we're swinging, if it's a pen and we're writing or a computer and we're typing, we're willing to do just about anything to make the best package for our family. And that's kind of what we begin to define as success. And then I've noticed as I've spent time around aged men, I've, I've noticed that they begin to have a different view of what success is for them. As I've spent time around older men, here's what I've noticed. They become far more concerned about what they'll leave than what they're taking. At least wise older men, they become concerned with what they're going to leave for their family. And making sure that everybody's taken care of and that their family doesn't have to bear burdens. And so towards the end of our life, our definition of success has gone from archaeologist to just making sure our family doesn't have to labor a bunch of debt or something like that. You see, success in our world and in our estimation changes rapidly with age and experience. But God's definition of success never changes. God's is consistent. So this morning when I ask you, do you want to be a success? I'm not asking you if you want to be a success based upon your definition or your uh, perception of what success is. The question I'm asking is, do you want to be a success by what God deems a successful child of His to be? Jesus said, John was a success. I want to be a success like Jesus thinks John was. So how can we get there? Number one this morning, if you're going to be a success, you've got to understand that God has a plan for your life. And it's so easy for us to read through Scripture and put these men in a different category than ourselves, isn't it? We read the Bible and it's like, well, Moses and Abraham and Elijah and, and you know, guys like, like, like John and, and Paul and Peter, they're kind of in the upper echelon of Christianity and God had great mission fields for them. God wanted them to do great things for him. But I believe the Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 29, 11, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord God, thoughts of peace and not of evil to bring you to an expected end. God wants you to know that he has a plan for your life. And he doesn't have a better plan for John's life than he has for your life. And if you're going to be a success, you've got to understand God has a real plan for you. Are you in that plan? Number one, under this, we look at the prophecies of John. You can look back through Scripture and find the Bible told us that John would be coming in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. It says, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert, in, uh, in the desert a highway for our, our God. We, we see that now as an Old Testament prophecy that John the Baptist be, would be the forerunner for Jesus as he would come. Even when the angel appeared to his father, Zacharias, he said, And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient of the wisdom uh, of the just and, and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So we see in Scripture that John had a plan before he was ever, you know, we say this sometimes, before he's ever a twinkle in his daddy's eye, you know. John had a plan Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But, but if, if I could help you understand one thing this morning is that that's the way God sees all of our lives. 
see, God is not introduced to us at the moment of our, at the entry of our story. God saw us before like he saw John before. And God had a plan for your life before like he had a plan for John's life. The Bible says that God, uh, one day is to God as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day unto God. God had a plan for John. And he had a specific role for John to fill. Let me ask you this. Are you fulfilling the role that God had planned out for you? Let me put it to you like this. Are you living the moments that God wants you to live? You see, we, we wake up and we view one day as exactly that, just another day. We're not particularly aware that God may use us in a very special way, in a very special place today. We view it as just another day. The other day I watched, a, 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 it was kind of like a help seminar, I guess you would say. And the man put uh, boxes on the screen and they filled up the whole boxes and And those boxes represented every day of a 90-year-old life. And man, you saw all these boxes and you began to get overwhelmed about how many days you have to live. But if we're not careful, we'll view every day as just another day and we'll never understand that God has moments planned for you to live out. The importance of a moment cannot be overstated. You see, there was a Sunday school teacher many, many years ago who became very convicted for this young Sunday school boys class. They were certainly, if you've ever been in the Sunday school class of a young children, they were uh, rambunctious to say the least. I remember in New Mexico, we dealt with some young boys on the Indian reservation. And boy, every day they'd come to the bus and, and they would come. And man, they had their dinosaurs and they brought their stuffed toys. I mean, and, and it was a handful. And you know what? I became just so uh, looking forward to seeing them every day. Even though they caused a little problem here and there, that's what made it fun. This Sunday school teacher probably felt the same way about these young men He became very very, uh, concerned about their souls and he began to pray that God would allow him to lead each and every one of them to the Lord. Sunday after Sunday passed, he preached, he taught them, and yet there was one young man who just did not seem to understand the gospel that he was teaching. I like the fact that his prayers didn't stay stationary because one day he went to the place where the boy was working. He worked in a shoe shop and he was a stock boy. He'd go from one uh, shelf to the other, stocking shoes. And he went to his place of employment and there in the stock room confronted him with his need for Christ. That day, it's kind of a great story, but, but that Sunday school teacher was able to see that young man trust Christ as his Savior. Now, you've probably never heard of the name Edward Kimball, but let me ask you, have you heard of the name of D.L. Moody? Edward Kimball was the Sunday school teacher. D.L. Moody was the little boy. All that Edward was doing was living his moment. He wasn't taking every day for granted. He wasn't just living another day as if, oh, this is just another day, but he was looking for the moments that God had for his life. And what John did was John's life was certainly planned and God had a plan for his life. But John took advantage of the moments when God put them in front of him. 
One of his moments was when he was baptizing and he looked up and he saw Jesus. And one of my favorite verses in all the Bible is when John introduces Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. It's a great story, but what John was doing every day was looking for his moment. Tomorrow when you wake up, will you look for your moment? That one moment where you can have an eternal difference for Christ. Something that's lasting. I'm not talking about the questions to the answers or the answers to the questions like, would you like fries with that? I'm talking about the the answers to the questions like, so what about this Jesus you believe in? What's Jesus done for you? Look for your moments. There's prophecies of John, but I want you to see secondly the preparation of John. What we take for granted oftentimes is these moments, you do not become good in these moments, you become good in preparation so at the time of the moment you can perform. It's like a basketball player. You see, everybody looks at a guy like Larry Bird and they say, man, what a shooter. I've heard people say that Larry Bird did the most with the least of any NBA player. You know why? Because uh, he just was not overly athletic He couldn't jump exceedingly high. He wasn't necessarily very fast. But what Larry Bird did is he practiced more than anybody. It's said that at the end of every single basketball practice, Larry Bird shot 500 free throws. That's something that most people don't do. What Larry Bird did in the privacy of his gym was never seen. And nobody's there applauding Larry Bird for making a free throw. But when it came time to perform, Larry Bird could perform. It's the same way in the Christian life. We know very little bit, uh, very little about the preparation of John. We know that it's kind of a miraculous birth. His mother was barren. The angel Gabriel came to his father in the temple as his father was a priest. He was there burning incense one day and he was performing the duties of the priest and the, the angel appeared to him. And uh, it's, it's really a unique story. I'd encourage you to read it because... Uh, Once he appears to Zechariah, he says, The Lord hath heard your prayer. So that means that that Zechariah must have been praying for a son. Even though his wife was barren, Zechariah must have been praying for that. And and it's kind of great because uh, he says, The the Lord's going to give you a child. And Zechariah says, Well, how how can this be? And, And I love this. You know, I'm not a proponent of sarcasm. But I think every once in a while, if you read the Bible, you can sense some. And the angel says, I am Gabriel. (laughs) And I sit at the throne of God. In other words, he's like, do you think I just came down here to deliver a pizza? You think that I'm just here because this was the place I wanted to come? I've got a message from God. And so there's a great story of John's birth. Sure enough, we know that Elizabeth goes and visit, or Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. As soon as she walks in, she tells the news that she would bring, uh, that the Holy Spirit had revealed to her that she would bring the uh, Jesus into the world. And it's uh, pretty unique because when, when John hears the news, the babe leaps within her womb. In other words, he's just a few months older than Jesus and he's excited about Jesus coming into the world. So when he hears the news, he's excited about it. He leaps within his mother's womb. It's a great story of his birth. 
But after that, after he's born, we know very little. It's very similar to how little we know about Jesus' time of preparation. All we know is that the Bible says this about John. And the child grew and waxed strong in the spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. You know what I've noticed in a lot of Christians' lives? We don't like our desert times. But if you study scripture, you'll find that almost every great man spent time in the desert alone with God. Nobody's in the desert clapping for you. Nobody's in the desert cheering you on. No, you get no fanfare in the desert, but that's the time when God makes the man so the man can do what God needs him to do. There's no fanfare there, but if you're going to be a success, you must realize that God has a great plan for you. And this plan has been seen by God forever. And God has moments that you can live out, but it's in the preparation we become prepared for the moments. God's got a plan for you. And if you're going to be a success, you've got to realize that God's plan is better than your plan. You've got to realize that happiness does not come from your plan. Joy comes from God's plan. If you're going to be a success, you must realize that the plan of God is applicable to you. Number two, we've got to evaluate what the passion of our heart is. John's passion is clearly about living for God. John's passion, I mean, he's kind of a weird bird, but I believe a lot of people that live for God would be viewed as weird people. You see in the Bible, John chapter, or Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, we see that he had his proper order in place. In other words, verse 11, the Bible says, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I. In other words, Jesus, who's coming after me, is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. You see, John says that the one that follows me is better than me. John says Jesus will soon be on this scene. And John was getting a lot of credit. John was getting a lot of followers. But when they would ever ask him about who he was or what his ministry was, John would say stuff like this. I am just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the paths. Prepare ye the way for the Lord. John was saying... I am not the object of praise here. I am not the one who this is all about. It is not all about me, but it is all about him. In fact, one day they come to John and and they ask him, well, Jesus is baptizing now. By the way, Jesus never baptized. It was his disciples that baptized. But they're saying, Jesus is baptizing, but baptism is your thing. You know how we get things in the church, you know, like the bus route is your thing. The Sunday school class is your thing. And we get, you know, like the chair you're sitting in right now is your thing. You say, yeah, it's not that big a deal. Okay, move. (laughs) See, we get our things and we get comfortable in our things. And that's what we want to be, you know, known as. And that's our thing. And it's almost like they come to John and they say, John, baptism is your thing. And John's answer to him is this. He must increase. But I must decrease. You want to know the reason that John was a success in this life by God's definition? Is because he understood that this life is not about him. 
He understood that anything he could do to lift up God and, 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 and somehow put himself down and understand that bring people to God instead of bringing people to him, that's what brought John happiness and that's what made God say about John that he is a great success. Even one day he says, Oh, I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. In other words, he says, I'm just introducing the bride to the bridegroom. I know who introduced my wife and I. His name was Eric. Eric was a goofy guy. He didn't stay in college, at least our Bible college, long. I don't know where Eric is. I appreciate the fact that Eric introduced me to Amy, but Eric did not get an invitation to the honeymoon. Why? Because he may have been a friend of the bridegroom and he may have been a friend of the bride and he may have brought the connection together, but, but nobody honored Eric that day at our wedding. Why? Because it's not about him. It was about how good my wife looked on that day. It was, she was beautiful. It was her day. That's what people keep telling me. It was her day. I was there too. I don't know. I'll never forget, man, we had that moment where we feed each other cake. There's a bunch of traditions about marriage, the wedding thing. I'm just not about, but we feed each other cake, which is weird. Think about it. I'm an able-bodied man. I can feed myself. But, but we fed each other cake, and she looked at me, and she's like, Now, don't you, do, don't you smush it in my face. And I was appalled that she would think that I would ever do that. <laughs> was appalled at the accusation. So I said to myself, I'm going to buy into this whole, this is her day. We're at her church with all the people that love her. And so I'm not going to embarrass her. I'm going to treat her with respect, at least until we get in the truck and I can make fun of some of the stuff she's been saying. But I'll never forget that cake got closer and closer to my face and she smushed it in my face. <laughs> I've never been so offended in my life. You see, that day wasn't about Eric. Just like your life isn't about you. You're just a friend of the bridegroom. It happens to be that we're part of the bride too, but, but we're in the connection business. We're to be bringing people to Jesus. It's not about us. We, not, we ought not go out into the world and prance around like Christianity is about us. If it was, it'd be called your name, Eanity. It's about Christ. It's about Him. He must increase, but we must decrease. John says, I am just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. You ever think about that voice thing? It's like when you go to the ball game and you're sitting there before the game gets going and you know that they're about to introduce the lineups and this voice comes on the PA system and says, Are you ready for some? I don't know. Maybe that's... Now it's, I think, Carrie Underwood that says, Are you ready for some football? It used to be Hank Williams. I'm not sure who says that now, but, but this voice comes on. Are you ready? And then they begin to introduce the, introduce the athletes, right? Probably the best introduction. I say Dirks is pretty good. The tall baller from the G, you know, because he's from Germany. It's a good one. But my favorite one ever was, was the way that that announcer would, would bring in Michael Jordan on Space Jam. <laughs> Not like the real announcer, which I think is pretty similar, but... Standing at six foot six... Hailing from the University of North Carolina, 
It's just like, get your blood pumping. I mean, you're like, okay, Bugs Bunny and Michael Jordan are on the same team. We're going to beat those monsters. They don't stand a chance. But even at the real arena, nobody in the arena looks to their neighbor and says, man, did you hear that guy's voice? Oh, no, you're not enamored with the voice. You're enamored with the guy, the guy that's being introduced. You're just the voice in this thing. You're just, you're just the one bringing those to Jesus. You're just the one introducing the one who is worthy of the praise and the glory and the honor. It's not about you, but it is about him. What is the passion of our life? It ought not be about us. And John had his priorities in the proper order. You see, when we lose the priority of our life, we find the purpose of our life. It's not about us. Even Jesus said, he that shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. It's not about us. John had his life in the proper order. But number two, he had the proper outlook. Verse number four, I want you to see this. And this is kind of an extreme teaching, so bear with me a little bit and don't shut me out too quickly. The Bible says, And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locust and wild honey. He had made Jesus such a priority in his life that he began to forsake some of the things, the, the creature comforts and the conveniences of modern day life so that he could be what he needed to be for Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that we should all take on a diet of locusts, because I think that's an awful idea. I don't like touching them. They're very difficult to catch. And so I'm not really about it. I will give you a tip. It's on the second jump. Let them jump the first time. Grab them on the second jump. But I don't think we ought to all take on a diet of uh, wild honey. I'm not sure where you would buy camel's hair. And I don't even want to know what some of us would look like in a leathern girdle. (laughs) But I will say this. It is noteworthy at the very least that John had... He was willing to put some of the conveniences of this world aside for the purpose of serving God the way that he should. What happens, man, we live in America and we are the most blessed country that I can ever even imagine. But sometimes our religion is more about the things that we can have than the things that we can do for Him. We become more obsessed with the creature comforts of this life than we do about actually serving the Creator. The Bible says, and no man. Don't think you're the exception. And no man can serve two masters. No man. John couldn't. He wasn't spiritual enough. Paul couldn't. He wasn't spiritual enough. And no man can serve two masters, for either will hate the one and love the other, or will cling to the one and despise the other. And it says this, you cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot. What we have to do is we need to get the proper outlook on life. John's outlook was this, anything for eternity is better than something done for temporary. Anything done in the spirit is better than anything done in the flesh. 
Anything done to serve the master is better than serving me. Anything that I can do to live for God is better than living for myself. John had the proper outlook on life. Don't get so distracted with the conveniences that we have in America that you begin to, be, begin to focus on what is not important and lose sight of what is most important. What's the passion of your heart? What is it that you're focusing on? What is it that you're living for? Who is it that you're serving? You see, John had the... He realized that there was a plan for his life. John had the passion of his heart was on God. And number three, I want you to see this, the preaching of his ministry. Now you may say, Brother Andrew, I'm not a preacher, but that is completely false. The Bible says, how can they hear without a preacher? And the the reality is, you'll see people this week that I will never come across. And you'll interact and your network of people is different than my network of people. And so what we got to understand is we are preachers to those that are around us. And here were the significant features of the preaching of his ministry. Number one, he had an inconvenient message. I wish this was not the case. I wish that our message that we would deliver to people would be, you know, like lollipops and, and sunshine. But the message that we must deliver is hard. Take your Bible to Luke chapter 3. It's where we mentioned that we would go to later on in the sermon, but Luke chapter 3, verse number 7, the Bible says, Then he said, then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Verse number 8, it's, it's at least something that we should pay attention to when it says, Bring forth therefore fruits, Worthy of repentance. And begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. John says, You've got to repent. John says in order to come to God, you cannot come to God the way that you are. And that's a difficult message to bring. I find it kind of funny that we go out on visitation and we dress up real nice. Uh, Some folks wear ties. Some folks wear like business casual clothing. Only recently I've started wearing a polo so I don't look so much like Colts. And so I wear a polo now and, and maybe that's not something you're comfortable doing. That's fine. But when we go to the door, we knock on the door, and we're there with smiles. They come to the door, Hi, how are you today? My name's Andrew, and this is my friend Charlie, and we're from Joshua Baptist Church. And we just want to know, do you have a church home you go to? You know, we turn on the smooth and charm. They say, no, I don't have a church. Or, yeah, I have a church. And we say, okay, okay, great. Well, we'd love to have you at our church. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Like a game show host. (laughs) Let me ask you a question. And we say something like this. Do you know if you died right now, you'd be 100% sure you'd go to heaven? And they may not understand the ramifications of that question. But what we're asking them is, do you realize that you are a lost and wicked and undone sinner on your way to hell right now? But we do it with a smile. 
Do you realize that there is a hell and if you do not know Jesus as your personal Savior, you're on your way to that terrible, awful, dreadful place? And it's quite ironic that we do it that way. I get it why we do it that way and, and I'm probably the worst about it. But, but my point is this, the message that we have is sometimes hard to deliver. It's not an easy thing to hear that you're a sinner. And I'll tell you, in America, it's coming to the point where everybody's a Christian, so we have a harder time convincing them that they're lost than that they need to be saved. We've got to get to the point where, and and I notice, John says, not just repentance, but he says, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. In other words, make your repentance so genuine that it actually begins to display in your fruit. That the works that you would live now actually testify of the decision that you made. He says, bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. Jesus said this about his own ministry. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Every time we knock on a door, what we're asking someone to do, and what our prayer is, is that they would trust Christ so that they could become a living martyr for him. That he would so radically transform their life that they would no longer live for themselves, but that they would live for a higher purpose, a purpose for the kingdom of God. What an inconvenient message to deliver. John was bold about it, and he proclaimed it to people that needed to hear it. Did you know this? Whether it's a convenient message or not, people in your everyday life need to hear that message. They'll never know if there's no preacher. They'll never hear if no one's there telling. What's the inconvenient message we must tell them? We must tell them that there's a God in heaven who loves them, but there is sin that separated them from Him. It's an inconvenient message, but this is what I like. It is an inclusive message. If you'll notice down in verse number 10 of this Luke chapter 3, the Bible says, And the people asked Him, saying, What shall we do then? Based upon the message that you've preached, what should we do? Notice the Bible says, and the people. Common people, normal people, just people there near where he was preaching, just everyday people. He answereth and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came also the publicans to be baptized. Now, if you're going to be baptized, you got to be saved. It doesn't make any sense to be baptized before you get saved. You know what you did when you did that? You just got wet. And so you got to be baptized after you're saved. So if they're coming to be baptized, that means that they've made a decision to trust Christ. And I want you to know who this is. This is the publicans that have made this decision. And they said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than which is appointed to you. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him. Now, now we've gone from everyday town folk 
which we can assume, based upon where he was preaching, since he was preaching in Judea, that most of them would have been Jewish. The publicans would have been Jewish turncoats, if you will. That's the way they would have been viewed. They were Jewish folks that were contracted labor for the Roman government to collect and exact taxes on people. So when, when, when someone heard of a publican or talked to a publican, when you hear the term, he ate with sinners and publicans, it's because they viewed publicans as betrayers to their nationality, even to their religion. They, they viewed them as the worst and associated with publicans was just crooked dealings. And that's why his advice to them is that they would, uh, uh, you see, let's see, in verse number 13, exact no more than that which is appointed unto you. You see, they were very good at making the numbers creep up and then uh, skimming off the top. So you have everyday people that were more than likely Jewish. You have publicans now that are kind of like a worse Jewish person in, in Jewish estimation. And then you have soldiers Now, soldiers would not have been Jewish. Soldiers would have been Roman. In fact, if you understand the dynamic at play, Romans viewed themselves as superior to everyone else in the world. They went through world, uh, the world conquering folks, trying to win kingdoms and conquer territories because they viewed themselves as superior. And these soldiers would have been appointed over these Jews and they would have looked at them as lesser creatures. They would have viewed them maybe as like a beast, just an animal. They treated them terribly. They were inordinately brutal towards them. And now you have everyday townsfolk coming to John. You have publicans who are worse sinners coming to John. And you have soldiers who come from a pagan government, probably the most immoral uh, 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 civilization ever, coming to John saying... What shall we do? And at no point does John send one of them away. John's message was a hard message, absolutely. If you're going to come to Jesus, you must repent. But it was an inclusive message. You know the Bible says? The Bible says about God, He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In fact, the Bible says in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, And the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. In fact, it's amazing to start thinking about the fact that the King of glory came to earth not to present the gospel in the palaces of this world, but to present the gospel in the streets of this world. He went to the poorest. He went to the lowest. He went to the everyday nobody and told them about His wonderful saving grace. Aren't you glad that Jesus said, I must needs go through Samaria? Well, why? That's very unaccustomed for a Jewish man to do that. Well, he had an appointment with a a lady that was adulterous there, and uh, he needed to talk to her about eternal living water. Aren't you glad that when he came and even selected his own disciples, he picked from the roughest group of men, fishermen? You ever heard the term, cuss like a sailor? Those guys were that guy. And yet that's the group of men that God's, God, Jesus came to this earth and selected to be his sidekicks, his, his uh, pillars of the church. That's who he selected. Aren't you glad, and I believe this is probably the most powerful illustration of the far reaches of God's grace, that while Jesus hung on that cross above the earth, 
There to one side of him was a man making fun of him. And on the other side of him was a man asking for salvation. Salvation was accessible to both of them. Even both of them said, we are guilty. This man has done nothing. But we hang here justly. We hang here because we deserve. We hang here because the right punishment was delivered unto us. And one railed on him and one says, Lord... Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. With no chance to show forth fruits meet for repentance. With no chance to get baptized. With no chance to tell anybody about the gospel. And yet Jesus says, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Aren't you glad that the gospel includes everyone? It doesn't just stop when your wardrobe doesn't meet up. It doesn't just stop when you got skeletons so ugly and so stinky in your closet that you can't hardly think of them or look at them. The gospel reaches farther than you can ever imagine. Oh, the depths and the riches of the goodness of God when it comes to salvation. Are you thankful that God's message of salvation is inclusive? It's kind of like the song says, Jesus loves even me. It reached far enough to reach me. It'll reach anyone. Yesterday we had an activity down at the gymnasium. We were going to do it at the farm, but we decided because it decided to have a biblical flood the night before that we decided to move it to the gym. It was a parent and teenager activity. We haven't done many of those since I've been in the youth department, but it was cool to see teenagers come. And I guess we'd had maybe 25 teenagers or so there. But overall, with parents and families and everybody there, we had about 50 people come to that activity yesterday. We had a deer backstrap. Woo! It was good. We had hog sausage, which I wasn't such a fan of that, but some other people liked it. And then we had caribou burgers. Now, let me just say, that was some good stuff. And when you think of how far they came, we were 800 miles north of Montreal when my dad shot that caribou. And we cooked them yesterday to youth activity. That's awesome. We had a good time. We played nine square in the air a little bit, and that was fun. But then after we ate, we played a game of Ultimate Frisbee. Now, Ultimate Frisbee is a little... If you've never heard of it or never played it, if you just imagine like the Roman Colosseums and kind of what took place in the Colosseum, just like the death and the blood and that type of stuff, that's the way that our Ultimate Frisbee game was yesterday, actually. We divided the teams up. We had teenagers out there. We had parents out there. And any time I've ever been associated with the teenagers, you know, doing games, they're always like, they get a little aggressive and stuff, but we don't have the most aggressive youth department. You throw the parents in that, good grief. <laughs> I'm talking about, I've got a scar on my arm. It still hurts today. Brother Charlie and Brother Mark, they had brotherly communing fellowship yesterday. They ran into each other and both of them just bounced off one another, man. It was violent. We, Brother Joe Nichols ran into a table that I'm not sure the table is okay. I'm talking about it was violent. And last night I went to bed and yeah, my arm was hurting a little bit. My wife said my face came about two inches from just breaking off on a door. I I don't remember. Kind of everything blurs after that. But uh, it was a fun time. But I went to bed last night and I I remember, you know, it was a good time. I woke up this morning almost crippled. (laughs) Good grief. 
my neck already is kind of an issue, and at my house I sleep with one of those travel pillows, you know, those goofy things that people use on the airplane. I use it every night because it kind of helps my neck. And You know, I woke up this morning and I like sit up and I just go right back down. I, I sit up in my knees, it feels like somebody's put a butter knife right in the front of my knees and I'm trying to break the butter knife blades as I stand up. I mean, it just was awful when I woke up this morning. You know what I realized? I may not have been on the winning team yesterday, but I don't think there was a winning team. Oh, sure, there was a team with a higher score, but if we all woke up feeling like I woke up this morning, we all lost, Okay. The only people that won were the smart ones that decided not to play. (laughs) Sitting over there on the bleachers judging us for our non-athleticism. Looking at us thinking, what are they doing? Those are the only winners. But in the Christian life, the only winners are those that will live for God. The only Christian that will ever win is the Christian that puts their life secondary to what God's calling on their life is. Somebody that looks to God and says, God, whatever you want from me. God, this is your body. This, these are your hands. God, this is your life. And I want you to live your life through me where I am. You want to be a success for God? Here, it really boils down to this. Stop living for you and start living for him. That's how you'll be a successful child of God.